You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Ann Todd, who's been a contributing author and consultant for the National Geographic Society. She's also given presentations in national parks about OSS operations and works as a historian for the National Museum of the Marine Corps. She's the author of OSS Operation Blackmail, One Woman's Covert War, against the Imperial Japanese Army. Welcome, Anne. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. I'm very glad to be here. So a book like this is, is it always interests me because not only is it a well-researched book on OSS history, you've obviously hit some archives in doing this research, <laughs> but you really have someone who you've been able to tap into as you know a huge advantage over the rest of us who, you know, I read this and I want to have a conversation with the subject of your book, and you actually had that opportunity. So can you talk a little bit about the idea for this book and, and how you were able to look at the, the subject of this and talk to her in person, which is fascinating. Well, I was casting about for a dissertation topic, and um, I, first of all, I realized the OSS archives had been declassified. I'd heard it and just, you know, kind of filed that away. And then uh, I ran across Betty McIntosh's nonfiction book, um, Women in the OSS, which is a great read. And I decided this, this has got to be it. First of all, I was, I was wanted to be a spy, so, you know. So I came up to Washington and, and got into the archives, and a very kind archivist gave me her phone number and said, why don't you call her? <laughs> So I cold called her. It doesn't get any better than that, right? <laughs> and she answered. She, uh, I, you know, I went to interview her and immediately knew this, this woman is amazing. She's lived five lives. And uh, so I asked her if I could write a book about her. Well, you clearly supplemented that with some significant work in the archives. And, well, and this is a dissertation. Yeah. So, you know, you got to do all your primary research. I, I spent a lot of time in those archives out at College Park, and it, mm -hmm. it's not a lot of fun. They're, no. they're, 
someone I will pay a lot of money to to go in there and find a way to categorize those a little bit better than they are, just the finding aids and everything else. It's it's really tough work. I mean, um, they, cla- they yeah. classify everything, but it's all just kind of there. Yeah, apparently there was an archivist there, John Taylor, who was really making sense of the OSS archives and getting the finding aids in order, but he died, and it's very difficult. Otherwise, I think there'd be a lot more dissertations about this topic. Right. I mean, it's kind of the black hole of Mm -hmm. understanding U.S. history, intelligence history. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. tons that CIA has done. I mean, now it's digitized, and it used to be you had to schlep down there to get on Crest, but now you can sit in your bedroom and, and access Crest without even leaving. Uh, OSS is just not there. I and mean, there's, mm. there's just millions and millions and millions of documents. It's just very difficult to find the ones that matter. So we can be missing a whole chunk of American intelligence history and not know it because people can't find the information in the archives. Well, and when you go after something, uh, you, just, you can't just get one box. Right. You better get boxes on either side and just plan on being there all day. And sure enough, a treasure will pop up, you know, three boxes down that I never would have seen. So, yeah, it's uh, not for the faint of heart. Well, what's interesting is that a lot of Betty McIntosh's life uh, was in CIA. And it's relatively recent. I guess when she retired in the 80s Mm -hmm. from CIA. So there's, you know, at some point could be a volume two to this book when finally all the CIA documents get released. I think you probably have first dibs on writing that second volume. The thing is, Betty, like a lot of OSS veterans, she took her secrecy agreement very seriously. And um, even things that she probably could have talked about, she wouldn't, you know. And um, so the thing about my book is it's not just the primary research and the documents. It's that I got to spend hundreds of hours with her. I think that's the kind of book I like to write. Yeah. So. Well, it certainly shows, and 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 you probably had to do some zhuzhing to this from the dissertation into the book, but it doesn't read for those out there that are worried that this reads like a dissertation. It certainly doesn't. I had a very indulgent committee, really. One of my members was H. W. Brands, and you know he writes for everyone. Robert Abzug, my my advisor. So that made a big difference because not every committee will let you do that. Yeah, usually there's a lot of work that has to be done to a mm-hmm. dissertation to turn it into a book that any normal human being will mm-hmm. want to read. So I, what, what, what I found very interesting about this, and for those out there that might have OSS fatigue to read another book about someone jumping in behind enemy lines or blowing up a bridge, this is an entirely different ballgame in this book. Really the central point of this is propaganda. And it's not just the kind of same old propaganda posters and other things that you see from World War II. It's black propaganda. It's kind of like the real devious stuff. Talk a little bit about those differences between white and gray and black propaganda and why that OSS was able to kind of carve out their niche in World War II doing this really dastardly black propaganda. Well, first of all, I'll tell you, uh, no one else wanted it. No one else wanted to do it. America had such a bad taste in, in the mouth after World War I and all of that propaganda. Um, Donovan was all about it, you know, because he, like uh, Winston Churchill, he wanted to set Europe ablaze with, you know, the same sort of thing the Nazis had been doing. And um, the thing about black propaganda is not that it's so dark and devious, which it is, but it goes to point of origin. 
So uh, you pretend something was printed in Japan when it wasn't. It's printed in India. Or radio broadcast, same thing. Um, it's point of origin, you know. You are pretending to be someplace and someone you're not. Right, so it's not like Radio Free Europe or the Office of War Information that's putting out, this right. is coming from the United States government. Right. We want to convince you we're better, but you know exactly who's saying this. Mm -hmm. Black propaganda actually looks like it's coming from either them themselves, themselves or from something usually. completely different. Yeah. yeah. And the Office of War Information, that's interesting, you know, there was a split because they believed that uh, the best, most effective propaganda is based on truth. So did MacArthur. Um, the black propagandists believed you build your scheme around a grain of truth, you know. And it was really black propaganda that ends up saving the OSS, who was, it was. lined up for disbandment until yes. they were able to kind of carve out this niche for themselves. Mm -hmm. I, is that something... You talk about Donovan believed in this, but is, is it kind of a, a chicken-egg argument about him embracing this because it was a way to save the agency? Oh, no. No, no. Donovan was publishing things, uh, you know, in open source, source newspapers about uh, the value of propaganda and uh, arguing that, you know, there were, was fifth, uh, fifth column activities and that we needed to fight on that same level. So, uh, no, he was all about it. It just happened that the split came, and he was ready. Yeah. And he just said, oh, yeah, I'm here, I'll do that. One thing interesting about black propaganda is that the target isn't a soldier, but it's the man behind the soldier, right? It's really getting at human emotions mm -hmm. and kind of, you can't do it well unless you're empathetic, like you know, put yourself in the shoes of these people. And it, anyone who's done any basic researcher or even just gone to school and learned about the Second World War, the Japanese were not seen as susceptible to this, kind of the machine mm -hmm. of the Japanese soldier of being unthinking and unfeeling and and then tied into the fact that most Americans completely misunderstood the Japanese culture and, you know, if you look at before the war, there's all this stuff about their pilots were bad because they had inner ear problems and they were too <laughs> stupid to do anything like Pearl Harbor and all them. Too missed. small. Right, too <laughs> small. Uh, they were all automatons. All they cared about was the emperor. Uh, they refused to quit. All mm -hmm. the, You can just very quickly Google some of the uh, caricatures of the Japanese leading up to the war. But the people that doing this work could not subscribe to that. They had to try to get into the soul of the Japanese person, not the soldier, but the person themselves. Well, Betty uh, loved to say, if you want to deceive someone, you have to love them. So, you know. I will say, this may sound sexist, but the women were deadly when it came to this stuff because they were empathetic. You know, they did see the son or the husband within the Japanese soldier. They could see a homesick boy mm -hmm. instead of exactly. a, a sort of person they kill. Mm -hmm. um, you have to think that it's probably extra difficult for these people because it's not like taking territory or winning a battle or bombing a city or anything else where there are concrete, tangible results to your operation. You could do black propaganda for the entire war and have no idea if it's working or not. Yeah, there's no uh, clear victory or defeat on the battlefield of the mind. 
and it is not for people who need instant gratification or any gratification. It's, uh, the process is opaque on both ends. You don't know really exactly where your target is or exactly who it is, and you never sometimes even know if they received the message. Right, because there's no way to check if they're actually reading this stuff. You just have to send it off in yeah. the ether and hope it gets back to someone. I mean, I found some traces in the strategic bombing surveys of Japan that were you know, completed right after the bombs were dropped after the war. And there was indication that some of the, the propaganda did get through to the home islands and, you know, made some difference. But it was real hard to find concrete right. e evidence of that. But if they come walking out of the jungle with an inducement to surrender in their fist, that's it. I mean, yeah, you see that with the strategic bombing survey of, of Germany also where mm -hmm. they talk about Marlene Dietrich and, yeah. and how much that, that damn, you know, music made them want yeah. to, to give in more than even the bombing did. Um, it's almost to a degree like guerrilla warfare or in counterinsurgency where it's not about winning. You're not going to win the war with black propaganda. It's just about not losing. It's about trying to find ways to maintain your operation until there is tangible results somewhere else and hope that you had a hand in producing those tangible results in the a end. A lot of these people, Donovan uh, deliberately recruited artists and authors and journalists and kind of um, what would be considered squishy people. And uh, a lot of them looked at this work and thought, this will save lives on both sides. You know, yes, the goal is to win the war. But if it's done right, it can save lives on both sides. Right. Let's talk a little bit about your, your heroine, uh, Betty McIntosh. Uh, she has an extraordinary upbringing, something that you talked about her being empathetic. I mean, a lot of it is also learning mm -hmm. the Japanese language, Japanese culture, being immersed at that level that you know many of us just don't have the opportunity to do uh, and that certainly gave her insight into it sounds condescending the japanese mind that others did not have oh absolutely well first of all you know let me just tell you a little background betty's mother before the first world war was a reporter independently living a professional woman in washington dc I mean, think about the date there. Right. You know, so right away, you've you've got an incredible parent. Her father was a sports editor, um, so she had the whole kind of encouragement that anything's possible. They called her indefatigable in the theater because she couldn't be stopped. Um, you know, she wouldn't have said her upbringing was all that extraordinary, but you know. She got a journalism degree. She went home, was a cub reporter when the war started. So, but yes, uh, she and her husband lived with a Japanese couple while their house was being built and totally immersed themselves in your traditional Japanese home with the soji screens and, and the whole bit and uh, developed quite a bit of fluency, as much as an American can, really. Well, that level of fluency is important, too, because it's not just about book learning Japanese. Mm -hmm. It's about being able to use vernacular and use slang and use things mm -hmm. later on that would be... And you can see, I mean, if you to talk about modern day where you look at Twitter feeds and you can tell that's not an American. Because oh, no kidding. They don't use syntax, conjunctions. conjunctions, <laughs> all that stuff. You're like, that's someone who learned English in a book. Mm -hmm. That's not someone who's lived this. And the same kind of thing, instead of a Twitter post, they're using postcards the same kind of thing is important because this black propaganda would fall flat on its face 
if it was this very rigid you know language that you would learn in school especially if it's a letter back from a soldier to his mom or to his wife or someone else well and she knew just enough to know what she didn't know she knew that when you learn uh japanese in hawaii you're basically learning what they call farmer japanese what somebody out in the fields might speak which can work well for a common soldier and so her project blackmail operation blackmail she realized that the kanji writing that she was reading was very simple you know messages uh not a high level of education so she knew she could work with that you know but when she got ready to falsify uh, an official surrender order um you know from the high command she knew she had to go find a pow that would help her so again you know she knew what she didn't know do you think that was somewhat conditioned by we kind of skipped ahead a little let's go back about her limitations that were placed upon her as a reporter covering the pacific war and kind of having to get around some of those limitations and really what brought her to the oss in the first place is a desire to do more than she Mm -hmm. actually was and and being able to be creative in finding ways to exist and succeed as a woman at the time when they had almost no possible ways of of helping to win the war effort and even as a top-line reporter they said you can cover the pacific but you can't actually go to the areas mm-hmm. where you can actually cover the war you've got to do these kind of feature puff pieces on yeah. you know supplies moving around and women doing things well and a lot of that would they didn't even allow to get out yeah. because uh, the army you know just didn't want anything getting off the islands but betty was like water you know she would get around anything and she had a low tolerance for frustration she has a pattern in her life if the frustration starts to build you can feel it you can almost see it and boom she either hops over an obstacle goes around it sweet talks somebody bribes somebody whatever it took so she was prime at the time as she was frustrated for being a reporter to be recruited by oss and they they did come to her and seek her out and recruit her for experiences Mm -hmm. i mean that was something that um it's almost like you imagine you know, in the movies where it kind of gets tapped on the shoulder by a guy she'd never met before, a shady-looking guy saying, hey, come join this organization. That's exactly how it happened. She was at an agricultural conference, and she described it like that, you know, he just appeared out of the mist, kind of. And uh, But I've heard a lot of other people describe that same thing, so I think it was kind of a mode of operation for these recruiters. You know. Well, that had to be interesting for her, but she certainly admits that she was not someone you would consider the stereotypical mm-hmm. secret agent, right? She's not going to mm-hmm. be climbing on the monkey bars and going jumping out of planes and parachutes. This mm-hmm. is a relatively slight woman. Uh, but they had the perfect job for her, uh, along with a bunch of interesting cast of characters. I mean, there are going to be names when you read this book that you're going to recognize. Uh, maybe some of them don't have the same last names as you know later on they haven't gotten married yet, but people like Paul Child and later on Julia Child and and people like Jane Foster who is an extraordinary historical figure uh, are thrown together of this kind of motley crew of people you would not expect to be working for the OSS but they have what I would think is an extraordinary impact on the war. Uh, Yeah someone said you know there's a lot of walk-ons in this book Um, and motley crew is exactly what it was. I mean, in many ways, I think you could describe all of OSS like that. Um, it's people who didn't fit other places or people who were so good at something 
that they were not content to serve in, you know, a regular military role or something. So Donovan was, he was a genius, I mean, for pulling all these characters together, and then those characters went out and found more. So it, it, it built on itself. Well, and doing it so fast. It's not like this was oh. something pulled together in peacetime. This is something mm-hmm. pulled together the height of war, mm-hmm. uh, behind the power curve, because the SOE and other mm-hmm. organizations had been created at that point for years, and then with absolutely no backup from the JCS, mm-hmm. from the government. Basically, FDR gave him the cover that he needed, but G2 hated Donovan, ONI hated Donovan. They all hated Donovan. They all hated Donovan. And he was able to pull these these motley crew together uh, to do these kind of missions that no one else wanted to well, do. Well, he had one very important thing. Unvouchered funds. Lots and lots of money that he could spend however he wanted. And he did. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Let's talk a little bit about the mission of the Black Propaganda. We've hinted at this already. Um, but really, it's it's not to get the Japanese soldier to do anything, right? You're not trying to convince this. I mean, to a degree. It, it's, But it's really kind of plant seeds. It's kind of getting the soldier very slowly and maybe just kind of getting a nascent embryonic thoughts in his head about doubt or despair or even in some cases resentment towards his government. Oh, absolutely. Resentment towards the officers. You know, just plant a little idea that they're getting comfort kits from home when the soldiers are no longer getting them because they were told, well, there's submarines out there stopping the supply line. And yet you can just kind of suggest maybe the officers are still getting theirs. You know, and if you... I mean, Betty's target in Burma were a bunch of Japanese soldiers that were on retreat from being defeated in India. And they were in bad shape. And they were ripe for all this kind of stuff. Rumors, suggestions, I mean, they probably, if anyone who's been a soldier, might already be thinking this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of just push it along mm-hmm. and shove it along. But you kind of also have to know the people that you're dealing with in order to find what might work the best. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to be the most successful thing about the morale operations branch of OSS is they were able to understand their targets better than I think the rest of the military did. I mean, or even the British, where there are people both still thinking the Japanese were these kind of... Oh, the British, yeah. Um, she she found a couple of good Brits that would really help her, but they were as much a problem as the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, Betty ignored the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The Brits, she bribed them and sweet, you know, would sweet talk and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, another potential target is not the soldier, but also people back at the home front. 
Oh, exactly. I talk about playing the long game, right? Mm -hmm. You start planting these seeds of doubt mm -hmm. back at the families in the rear, and of course that information gets to the soldier. Now it takes longer, but maybe it's even more powerful if it's coming from a mother or a wife or a family member. You know, um, one of the last things I did when I rewrote the dissertation for the book, I got a hold of some uh, Japanese diary collections and read those um, diaries from home, on the home islands. Uh, and it was amazing how spot on the morale operations people were in the, what they were targeting, how they were targeting them. Do yeah. you think that if... It, the CBI theater, the, the China-Burma-India theater, was basically the Wild West of the war. Yes. There, was, there was not a lot of oversight going on there. Do you think that they would have been able to pull off what they did if they were in a more regimented system, if they were in Europe or if they were in, under the command of MacArthur and not kind of in the middle of nowhere where you had to literally fly over Mount Everest to get to some of the areas they're operating within? Well, sure. But again, I'm going to go back to OSS, you know, just... Uh, by virtue of the people in it, um, they were able to accomplish a lot because they just thought of things. You know, we call it thinking outside the box now, but um, they were doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, it, there were good operations in Europe with morale operations, some really successful inducements to surrender and uh, some great stories there. The thing is, they were happening uh, at a time when Betty couldn't take advantage of knowing that. So, you know, it's not like she had blueprints, right. she and her friends. Well, a lot of this exactly was making it up as they went along and, and, and really getting beyond hardships that, yes, there's snakes and there's, like, terrible weather and it's monsoon <laughs> season, but... It was all about the adventure. Well, the adventure was made even more adventurous by the fact mm -hmm. that they had to kind of cobble together the equipment to actually do mm -hmm. some of these operations. They, endless money only goes so far if you can't get printing presses, you can't get the paper you need, you can't get the ink that you need in order to do this. They basically had to beg, borrow, and steal. And you've already kind of talked a little bit mm -hmm. about the British, the cousins. Um, but there were a lot of tensions between the British and the Americans. Everyone looked at the Second World War as this, like, yay, let's all do this together, everybody happy, everybody hugging. But there were, especially in the Pacific, when all the kind of the colonial tensions were involved in there, the British and Americans didn't really get along all that well. Oh, uh, that's kind of an understatement. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the first things that just hit me upside the head when I started this research is there was out-and-out -out hatred there. And, um, you know, the British didn't trust the Americans. They felt, you know, the Americans wanted to take their their empire away from them which wasn't all that you know far off base right. especially in oss they were very anti-colonial so you know well I mean, you look at you know it's not just the british do the dutch the french there are a lot of exactly I mean, you talk about how betty runs into the man we later know in ho chi minh mm -hmm. who you know was pushing against the french and then the dutch and indonesia mm -hmm. and other places did not like the oss being there because it was clear the only way the oss is successful is if it works with people who would later become the yeah. guerrillas and the revolutionaries yeah. against their China's empire. a perfect example. I mean, you know, people have different opinions on this. My opinion is Chang cared a lot more about, you know, fighting the communists than he did the Japanese. Right. And I'm not alone in that opinion. And uh, so the OSS, you know, they went for the people who were fighting the Japanese. That was the communists. Right. Well, and, well, we'll get to the fact that some of them were slightly communist themselves oh, too. Absolutely. This is problematic. We'll talk about that in a second. 
let's look at Operation Blackmail, the kind of the title of the book. And you've already you've already alluded to it, and mentioned it, but let's break it down because we kind of went a little bit beyond what it actually was. Mm-hmm. So can you lay out what the plan was? Because I think it's absolutely ingenious pulling this thing together because it really hits at the heart and goes straight with a dagger right between the rib cage to try to go after you know that the soft squishy parts in the rear not the soldier but the home well it was born out of necessity because uh, betty landed in delhi with none of her equipment if you're going to do black propaganda you have to have all kind of stuff as you've mentioned presses and paper and she landed with uh, a box of typewriter ribbon and no typewriter that's it so you know her first trip to the british kind of to beg they let her dip her hand in a nasty captured mailbag and that's when she pulled out these um postcards and immediately i mean she could read them because like i said it was is simple language and her first reaction was oh you know these nice notes to sweethearts and wives and mothers will never reach their destination and her friend Bill Magistretti pointed out, oh, look, the censor's chop is there. It's already been cleared. And so, you know, light bulbs went off and they realized this can be slipped back in the mail stream and make it to Japan. So, you know, they just set up an operation right there and uh, everybody started racing and altering messages. Yeah, don't write your postcards in pencil because it makes it very easy just yeah. to erase and That's right. and replace. Um, some of these were pretty extraordinary and some of the ones that they, they eventually do coming back from the home front to the front about one that you include like the full text of one of the letters of very simple. It was just kind of, you know, from the wife or whatever <laughs> saying everything's going great. You know, have you seen so-and-so? It was his wife... Uh, she's having a baby, and mm-hmm. just, it was one of these planting the seed yeah. of doubt. It, it reminded me a lot. You talk about some success, successful operations in the European theater, and there was a League of Lonely War Women operation mm-hmm. where, kind of this planting this idea that the women back at home are not being loyal to the soldiers in the field. And you can imagine a twenty-three-year-old guy who's got a wife back home. It's probably not far from his mind every day about, mm-hmm. you know, is or is my wife being loyal? And just that that kind of prick in the back of the mind to get that idea going can, can be absolutely destructive in the battlefield. Yeah, and I mean, Operation Blackmail, it, it really was ingenious in its simplicity. It just was postcards, yeah. you know? And the messages were so in the vein of whatever had been written so the person receiving it would feel that, well, of course, this is Keiko, you know? Right. Well, so, and it wasn't so over the top that right. it was obvious, right? It was just slight, just nuance, right. just yeah. to get the doubts going. Um, then they decided to kind of take it up a notch a little bit with looking at creating fictitious people, mm-hmm. looking at like omens and planets aligning and magically came up with coming up with a bad omen something horrible is going to happen in august of 45 which that certainly worked out well for them and even things like creating rumors that the soviets are entering the war which is the nightmare for the japanese of fighting this two-front war well again this this is what happens when you uh 
enlist people like anthropologists and historians and even bird watchers because bird watchers know everything about the culture they've had to live in you know to watch their birds in New Guinea and so you get people who know that you know the Japanese did live in fear of uh, Russians pouring over the the border um, so it, it took informed educated people to be able to know how to target some of these things. Well, you'd mentioned the use of POWs a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. that Betty knew when she needed to uh, go beyond her, her level of knowledge. And it's a really strange dynamic here. And you, you lay it out in the book, and it's something that I, I didn't really know all that well, that you didn't get a lot of Japanese surrendering. That is you know, an idea that a lot of us have that is relatively true, that it was rare to have, you didn't have whole units of Japanese surrendering like you did for the Germans, but when they did, they essentially were the model prisoners. I know. Doesn't that blow you away? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense. But well, I their life never... is over yeah. as they knew it, and they've been conditioned, and it, it's true. They were conditioned to follow orders and, and do what you were told to the best of your ability, be the best, you know, whatever your uh whoever is in authority is telling you to be see betty knew that there were cases of these prisoners because she had attended um back in washington ruth benedict and margaret mead came in and talked at length to them about these situations where you had japanese pilots that um you know they surrendered and then they would get up in the plane and they would ride and Guide, you know, they basically the Americans navigators to like, yeah. <laughs> so, and this is extraordinary, and that that allowed her to put stuff in front of the POWs, especially ones mm-hmm. that were higher ranked, mm-hmm. and deal with that whole problem of her not understanding how to do more formal Japanese. Yeah, and, and that really came in handy with the surrender orders. Not what I thought was hilarious was that it even fooled. The Office of War Information. I just love that. That's when, when you know how good your black propaganda is when your own government takes it as real. You know, the OWI was a little bit like the British with OSS. They had a little bit of a love-hate relationship. So, yeah, they always kind of loved it when they could sort of twist the knife to OWI, fool them along with everyone else. Well, you already mentioned that the they were able to know that this actually worked a little bit because a lot of the Japanese that surrendered had the leaflets in their hand that I automatically thought back to Desert Storm where the same basic kind of concept of creating these leaflets and the Iraqis were surrendering. Um, Did this change the perception of black propaganda among the leadership, among the the people who had kind of poo-pooed it before, like you talk about MacArthur and others? Because beginning the Japanese to surrender was a pretty big deal. No, it didn't. You know, their hatred for Donovan, their hatred for unconventional means of doing things, uh, the military command structure, you know, if anything, it annoyed them. And it's not like uh, these inducements to surrender were successful on a a vast scale. Mm -hmm. Just enough, really. There was one case, Ramry Island, down on uh, the coast of Burma, where pretty much 300 Japanese surrendered because of the black propaganda campaign. That was unusual. Right. So, you know, the military command structure looked at all that and pretty much, you know, didn't like Donovan, 
didn't like OSS. Let's get back to business kind of thing. What was it? Nimitz or Halsey or, or one of them that just, the whole point was just to kill Japanese. Like, mm -hmm. forget this nonsense. Kill Japs, kill Japs, and kill more Japs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so well, and then there are the stories about Japanese actually trying to surrender and not being successful at it. Uh, and we, won't, we don't need to get too much into kind of the sociology of war and, and the reasons that that happened and you know, that can take us off in a direction we don't need to go in. Well, but. if anybody in your audience wants to get into that, John Dewar wrote the books, War Without Mercy, and, you know, documents the cases of Japanese um, pretending to surrender mm -hmm. and then blowing themselves up. And you do that a few times in a row right. out there in the Pacific, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's something that probably every every military has had to deal with for thousands of years is the fake surrenders, and you just get to the point where you're like, nope. No, we're done. done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite stories in this book was a short one, but it, it, it's when the team decided it needed to black propaganda their own people. And this was the case of the Christian missionaries. Oh, the missionaries. Which, uh, it just, it, it almost, they got so good at it, they're like, you know what? Let's just do it to these guys and get them working with us. Can you tell that story? It's just so good. Well, the missionaries were a wonderful contingent of morale operations and OSS because, again, um, they knew, you know, they knew the dialects and they, you know, they had lived in these countries um, on the ground. But, yeah, they had their scruples. And so Betty, I mean, that was it was pure genius to uh, convince them that, uh, you know, these uh, Japanese were encouraging the slaughter of Christians and whatnot. They got on board real fast <laughs> and, so, and were very effective. Did they, do you know if they ever found out they had been duped and that the, the documents that said that they were murdering Christians were made by Betty? I think by the time uh, they might have found that out, they didn't care. <laughs> Well, we had talked about the fact that there were very few jobs for women uh, in, in during World War II that were of any kind of semblance of you know, leadership positions or certainly anything that would give someone like Betty uh, job satisfaction outside of what she was doing. Uh, but amazingly, uh, when a job position opened to be the actual head of the morale operations in the CBI theater, she got chosen for mm -hmm. it. I mean, is there any other instances in OSS history where a woman was put in charge, essentially, of a theater operation like that? Well, yes. Uh, in China, Burma, India, I'm trying to think of her name. She taught at Harvard for years. Uh, she was in charge of secret intelligence. Mm -hmm. She was an anthropologist. Um, again, OSS, Donovan, you know, he kind of had a little bit of a reputation as a ladies man I don't know about that but I will say that when it came to operations he was gender blind and if you could do the job he didn't care if you were a convict or a communist or a woman you got the job and that's pretty much I mean there were a lot of exceptions but as a whole that's how the organization worked is there evidence that that served to change people's minds outside of OSS about the ability of women during World War II. Uh, seeing people like Betty do this job and do it really, really well, did that, did that bleed out into outside of the OSS to, to the kind of soldiers in the field? Mm, 
I don't know. I mean, you know, you've got the whole Rosie the Riveter right. thing, and and there's a that's it's outside my field. I yeah, no, know. I was just wondering if you knew. I mean, I I, I suspect probably not. I mean, the I early think, CIA, yeah. uh, Betty, because of her expertise in Asia, got sent there by Dulles. A lot of other women, uh, like Virginia Hall, the the one with the you know wooden leg mm-hmm. that was a true hero for training the Maquis, got put behind a desk. Yeah. You know, so things reverted. Let's talk about some of the people who Betty worked with who did not have a great end of the war. People like Jane Foster and others that were targeted Mm -hmm. uh, in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And and kind of the history of OSS during this time that was, talk about shooting herself in the foot of some of the most talented people who had been working on these operations, not just black, black morale operations, but we're talking about commandos and people working in the field who were targeted as being too left-leaning by people like Joe McCarthy, but it's not all McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. It starts before that with HUAC and, you know, before McCarthy even comes on the scene. But Foster, who was, I guess you could argue, Betty's best friend. Betty's best friend. Um, yes. Was someone that our listeners will know, uh, this name, Elizabeth Bentley, who was, she was mm-hmm. dimed out specifically by mm-hmm. Bentley. Mm-hmm. And it drove her to suicide. Uh, no, suicide attempts. Suicide attempts. Yeah. Well, yes, she became very isolated. You know, whereas Betty went into the CIA, Jane was indicted for multiple counts of espionage. Um, it's going to be the subject of my next book. Mm-hmm. Betty was convinced of her innocence, especially during the war, because the FBI was arguing that Jane was, you know, spying for the Soviets during the war. And Betty was adamant. And I've gone through the NKVD transcripts. They talk about her, but it's all in terms of can we recruit this person? Should we? You know, the same sort of chatter that you get with any prospect that they are looking at. I I couldn't find any hard, like, this is what we're getting sort of thing. I mean, Jane was a 1930s communist. There were millions of them in this country. And uh, so, you know, left-leaning, leaning, yes. Well, and someone so talented that it would be stupid if the NKVD wasn't talking about trying to mm-hmm. recruit her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that sometimes, unfortunately, was used as proof, and not just for her, for a lot of others. Yeah. Like, ooh, you appeared in Venona. You must have been, no. Oh, they're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're a good organization. They're going to try to recruit people that are good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's... Problematic and for many in OSS. I mean, you can imagine the early years of CIA could have been extraordinarily better if they hadn't forced out or essentially prevented so many people that had been, you know, perfected by war in the OSS from joining CIA or people who had joined CIA and then got pushed out because of McCarthyism. Well, and I'm going to lay a lot of it at Ed J. Edgar's feet. Mm-hmm. He, his, again, hatred for Donovan was so intense, and Betty told me that, and I, and I talked to some people today, I was at a, you know, a wonderful presentation of retired uh, intelligence officers, um, and they talked about how they were dogged by the FBI after the war, you know, their homes were searched, and uh, it, it was ridiculous, you know, yeah. so it wasn't just MacArthur. Well, she, Betty herself, was going to not continue her espionage work, was going to not continue 
uh, being an intelligence officer after the war. She had moved on to other things. Mm -hmm. uh, she married her, her second husband and had a very loving relationship until the mid-1950s, uh, and then kind of had a second career in intelligence. I mean, at 43, mm -hmm. she basically decided to go back into doing intelligence work and did it until what? She was in her 80s, I guess, when she... Well, she didn't really decide to go back. You know, her husband had died, and uh, her friends, who had been in OSS, started, you know, she was depressed. She was sad. And uh, they just started talking to her and saying, you know, you need to go see Alan Dulles. And apparently, one night, they were partying out on a boat in the P Potomac and convinced her. And so she went to see him. He said, are you ready to get back to work? And uh, it went on from there. And do we know a lot about, I know there's a lot of stuff that's probably so classified. Do we know a lot about what she did at CIA? I know she went back to Japan, mm -hmm. but she was in the CIA from the 50s all the way through the 80s. Do we mm -hmm. have any idea of, of her career at the agency? I've tried to piece it together. And, and there's some open source things out there that hint at stuff. But, um, you know, it was basically influence operations. I mean... Same sort of thing, yeah. I guess. So yeah. she probably not in the DO, probably doing, you know, she was an operator. She was well, a case officer in in Japan. She was yeah. sure, yes. So kind of bringing back some of the old stuff from before. Mm-hmm. Um, you you lead off the book, if I remember uh, right, uh, with uh, post nine eleven, and just kind of gives you a little bit of the idea about the personality. A Betty Pack, mm -hmm. Betty Pack, sorry, Betty yeah. McIntosh, uh, that get my Betty's confused, who are doing intelligence work in World War II, um, where at the age of 80-something, uh, after 9-11, she said, put me to work. Yeah, called him right up. And, mm -hmm. and some of the articles I've read about her, told the day she died, which was not mm -hmm. that long ago, mm -hmm. she was still doing what she could to give back to the agency, giving talks and talking to younger officers and talking to younger well, people. My dear friend Tony Hiley, who's director of the CIA Museum, yeah, described her in front of a bunch of, you know, influence operation officers. And uh, Tony said, you know, she would just lean in and go totally operational and have their total attention because she, she just slipped right back into it. Well, it's, it's amazing that you can own that kind of an audience because, you know, this little old lady... Yeah, exactly. Who is sitting in front of all these, you know, mm -hmm. CIA people who, at the beginning of their career, midway through, think they know what they're doing, and then when she starts talking, everyone just shuts up and listens. This oh, is somebody that oh, had they did decades. I mean, I was privileged to go to Langley with her two or three times. People, I mean, she's a rock star there. People would line up to shake her hand, and you know, which was gratifying to see. Yeah, it's rare that in this world that you have somebody that is kind of universally respected because mm -hmm. the top people will find a way to create enemies you know whether they're former directors who have political enemies or there are people in operations that they had the left hate them or the right hate them or somebody in between it's rare that somebody that spent that much time doing this kind of intelligence work kind of the darker side mm -hmm. it's not called black propaganda for no reason are just universally respected across the board like she was I, you know, I've never talked to anyone who knew her that didn't just think the world of her. She was um, a very gracious person. And the fact that she had this wicked capability makes it all the better. 
Well, if you want to know more about her, uh, there's only one place to go. The book is OSS Operation Blackmail, One Woman's Covert War Against the Imperial Japanese Army. The author is Ann Todd. Ann, thank you so much for talking to us at SpyCast. This book was, again, a breath of fresh air. Um, in, in this job, I get lots of books sent to me, and every OSS book reads somewhat similarly, and this was one that just kind of can't... I, it's another OSS book, and then I started reading. I'm like, oh, this one's different in all the right ways. So I appreciate... Uh, you writing this. I appreciate you taking what had to have been an extraordinary amount of work to put into this. Uh, it's a fa fascinating book. Thank you so much for talking. Oh, to us you're today. welcome, Vince. And the pleasure was all mine. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. Now.